Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we will be in verses 15 to 23 this morning. The pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly uh, several years ago, a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse, once said this. If Satan took over Philadelphia, here's what it'd look like. All the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, and the children would say, yes sir, and no ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. When Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, he is trying to show them that there are many things in the world, even things that are good, that are tempting to distract you from Jesus Christ. And that is his message in the book of Colossians, is he is saying, come back to Jesus. Don't just talk about him, don't just mention him, don't move on from him. Saturate yourself in him. And he gives us, in this chapter, in this section, one of the richest resumes of Jesus that we see. And it is one of the great Christological texts in all of Scripture. And so let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we look at this text. And it is truly one of the most beautiful things that any human being has ever written down. And it is something that has stood the test of time. And we're asking that as we look at Jesus' dazzling resume, that we would be stunned, we would be amazed, and that we would yearn to hear more of him. And that we wouldn't be satisfied with other things. We, would, we wouldn't go aside to other distractions, but that we would say, give me more of Jesus. But Holy Spirit, only you can do it. And only you can proclaim through a weak, sinful man. And we do ask that. Give us ears to hear. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Hiring for a job can uh, be easy and it can also be difficult at times. Uh, I've been in a couple of positions where I've had to hire for a job and uh, what you do is obviously you look through people's resumes and uh, maybe some of you are uh, you're working for a company where you get maybe like, uh, I don't know if it's you know, not Monsters, uh, whatever, not Monsters, Inc., that's the, it's the movie. Uh, but whatever the resume databases are where they send you people's qualifications, they send you their resumes to see who's fit for a job. And one of the things that can be tempting in that process is when you come across a very good resume and you think, wow, this person would be a very good fit. But maybe there's also someone even better out there. And so what you do is you kind of hold that resume to the side, but then you, you keep looking more and more and more, and you're just thinking, maybe there's someone better out there. You see, that is often what the church does when we think about Jesus Christ, is that we look at Jesus' resume, and it is so dazzling, it is so beautiful, it is so incredible, and nothing else matches up to it. But yet, how often do we give in to the temptation thinking that, Maybe there's another resume out there. Maybe there's someone or something else other than Jesus that can do or give me what Jesus can't. You see, that's exactly what Satan tries to do to churches across all places, across all times. And that's what he was doing here to the Colossians, is that he was trying to distract them, saying that Jesus is good, but he's not enough. Paul had to deal with that in many of his different churches after he would plant them and these false teachers would come in and say, Jesus is good, and they would talk about Jesus and they would teach about Jesus, but they would emphasize things other than Jesus. And that is his great tactic. It is his great strategy. He wants us to take our eyes off of Jesus, but what we know we need most, we don't merely need to mention Jesus we need to saturate ourselves in Jesus and his person and his work. That is why we gather. That is who the church is. People who behold their Savior. And the question that we want to ask is this. When we think about the Reformation over 500 years ago, is focusing on Jesus in all our sermons, in our studies, in our counseling, in our community groups, is focusing on Jesus sufficient to build the church today? Is it sufficient to have another reformation today? And what Paul is saying is that it is. And above all things, we need to stay focused on the dazzling resume of Jesus Christ. So when we look at his resume, first let's look at the qualifications of Jesus' person. And then secondly, the qualifications of Jesus' work. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Certainly when you read that word, the image, it should remind you of Genesis 1, 27, where God made man what? In his image. You see, we know from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we know that God is spirit. He, in his being, is invisible. Well, then how are we to see God, well, one of the reasons why God created man in his image was that man would act like the moon that would reflect the light of the sun to the world. And so when we see that Jesus Christ is not just a image, he is the image, it means that he is, well, we could say the perfect moon. Really, in a way, he is the sun. He shows us who God is. 
we see that as he is the image of the invisible God, that he is even better than Adam was. He is the greater son. And isn't that a really good reminder to us as well, that if Jesus is the perfect man, then we can never look at him and say, well, that's Jesus, that doesn't count. That's what we would call heresy. Uh, don't say that. Jesus is like you and, you and me in every single way, yet without sin. And actually, here's what it means. That if you really want to know yourself, you've got to know Jesus. And when you don't look at Jesus, you might try so many different theories, so many different tests, so many of these different other things that the world's trying to tell you today, but you will never know who you are because you're not looking at Jesus. He is the image. He is the one who has always been the image of God for all eternity, even before he took on flesh. He has been the second person of the Trinity. And as Athanasius has said, the word of God came in his own person. That as he was the image of the Father, he might be able to recreate man after the image. Here's why it's amazing that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Because we are broken. And we are sinful. And unless there is a perfect image, then we will never be healed. And that's who Jesus is. He is the perfect image so that he can recreate us into who we're meant to be. Jesus is also, it says, and look at the next part of your text. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus is literally the first created being, or that he is literally the first being who was born? No, it doesn't, doesn't mean that, and even though that's what a guy named uh, Arius would say, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses say today, but actually, if we're going to understand what the word firstborn means, we need to understand what did Paul mean by that word. Well, here's what it means in, in their cultural context. The firstborn meant uh, someone, it was a legal term to the one who is the legal heir over all things. They're the person who would inherit the power and the authority of his father over the household and everything that comes with it. So here's what it means to be the firstborn. Here's what Paul's meaning. He's not saying the first being to come into creation. He is saying that Jesus is the sovereign. He is the king. He is over all things. He has all power. He has all authority. You see, everything in creation is underneath him. We know that Jesus is not the first created being because it says that he is the one who created all things. Look at verse 16. For by him, all things were created. Therefore, Jesus cannot be created. He has always been. All things were created by him. And I think that's a very interesting thing and a very much needed reminder for us today because we are very obsessed with creation more than we are the creator. You see, we have an obsession with the lower things in life. And as C.S. Lewis says, the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but our desires are too weak. We taste good food and we say, ah, oh, that is it, and I will stay with this good food and I will become a glutton so I can just take that in more and more. But good food is meant to, meant to make you say, what must the creator of it be like? All things were created by him. You see, even our very bodies are created by him. 
The world today is trying to say that our bodies don't matter or that we can define our bodies any way that we want. And I can say whoever I am just based on how I feel. But our bodies are created by Jesus Christ. Therefore, he determines how they should be defined. All creation is for him, it says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And watch this. All things were created through him and for him. Have you all played tetherball before? You know, tetherball, the ball is on a string that connects to a pole. And wherever that ball goes, it eventually comes back. And it might swing out kind of far, but it is always connected to that pole. And eventually it comes back. Here's how that relates to this world. Everything in creation is connected to Jesus Christ. And whenever we try to disconnect anything from Jesus Christ, it won't make sense. It won't fulfill its purpose. All things in creation are meant to be intimately connected with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, we can say this. You will never understand any person or anything or any experience whenever we, you forget Jesus Christ. It's all centered upon him. You see, we have a problem in our churches today because we're so obsessed with self. And we like to champion ourselves and detach ourselves from Jesus Christ. Here's what theologian Michael Horton says. The focus seems to be on us and our activity rather than on God and his work in Jesus Christ. And in all these approaches, there is a tendency to make God a supporting character in our own life movie than to be rewritten as new characters in God's movie of redemption. We are constantly asking the question, how does Jesus fit into my story? But Christianity says, how do we fit into his? It is about him. All creation is for him. And that means that the thing, things like sex and business and relationships and parenting and ministry, it will never make sense when it is not intimately connected with Jesus Christ. All creation, all things are are held up by him. Look at verse 17. And he is before all creation, and in him all things hold together. It's like if you built an, an, an ark, or an arch, not an ark, uh, although that has been built, uh, but an arch, and you build it stone by stone, well, what is going to hold that arch together but the centerpiece? And when you remove that centerpiece, everything else will collapse. That's who Jesus Christ is. When you remove Jesus Christ, everything else will collapse because he holds all things together. And isn't that such a good comfort when we look in the world today and we see things like what's happening in Afghanistan or abortion laws or the destruction of sexual ethics? Or the COVID strands, or the supply chain, or rising crime. Isn't, isn't that a comfort to know that whenever we watch the news, or maybe you're subscribed to a news source on your phone, and you just keep getting those notifications, and bad news sells, by the way. And isn't it a comfort to know that amidst everything going on, especially when it does not make sense, 
Jesus Christ holds it all together. Amen? He holds it together. He is working all things out for his glory and our good. That's what Paul is trying to tell the Colossians, saying, look, focus upon him, because when things get chaotic, and they will, he's holding it together. Jesus is the head over all creation, but Jesus is also the head over all new creation. Look at uh, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the body describing the church. And, I mean, what does that mean? Well, just think about your own head. Well, my hand is united to my head. My toes are united to my head. My, my spleen, unless it's been taken out, uh, or whatever it is in your body, it is all in union with the head. The head is the chief. The head determines where the body goes. The head gives the body life. You see, when it says that Jesus Christ is the head, it means that he gives the church life. And I love that as Jesus himself says in John 15 verse 5. He's talking about, he's saying, look, I am the vine. The vine that gives fruit. The vine that gives life. And when you abide in me, you will bear fruit. But in John 15 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If my arm was cut off, would it be able to do anything on its own? No. Then why do we think that we are so good and so sufficient that we can do anything, and as long as we just get our techniques right, then we can make the church expand, but we don't really need Jesus. Why do we do that? We might even grow in numbers. We might grow in excitement. People might talk about us. People might say that's a relevant group of people. But there is no spiritual growth without Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us life. He is the head of the church. It also says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again. You see, as Jesus Christ was the first one risen, he is the Lord over all other people who will be risen as well. You see, he is the beginning of the new creation that God does to us. And here's what's amazing about that. That if Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, if you're a Christian, you will too. And if your family members or your friends who have died in the Lord, they will be risen. You see, whenever we go to funerals, it is a time of mourning, but it is also a time of hope. Because we can know that as we look at the body in that casket, we can know that that person, if they've died in the Lord, they will rise again. And the whole world will see. He rose from the dead to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, to defeat death. And in him too, we will rise. Jesus Christ, and look at verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus himself is the the fullness of God. What does that word fullness mean? Here's what it means. It's actually the same word used of a river that is overflowing with fish. You ever seen planet earth when uh, you just see like the bears standing on 
uh, the rocks, or maybe they're standing like in the actual river, and fish are just jumping everywhere, and they're just like have their mouth open. You know, or maybe you see alligators. Shout out to Louisiana. A river that is just overflowing with fish. Here's what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. There is nothing about God that is lacking in him. Everything that makes God, God is in Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of God. But isn't that also a rebuke to us because we try to find God in so many other things. We try to find God by going out on Saturday night to get drunk because as long as we can have that feeling, then that'll be it. Or we try to find God in sleeping with someone else because maybe if we can have that feeling or that sensation, then that will be like God. Or maybe we, as long as we can just manage our finances well and we can secure our life and our family's life and we make sure that our little kingdom is secured, then, then we'll be like God. But there's only one place where you find God. And it is in Jesus Christ. He's the fullness, but he is also the reconciler. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus brings creation back together in himself. Jesus, when he died on that cross, did not merely die for you, he died for, to restore Pluto. Not the make-believe dog, but the actual, well, I guess it's not a planet anymore, uh, so forgive me. Uh, he died for the farthest out star that we have yet to even see. All of creation will be glorified in him. And isn't that a powerful death? Because it is the creator. And in him, he brings all things together. He restores creation and he makes new creation. And how does he do it? You see, he does it by becoming a curse. He does it by taking the curses of Deuteronomy when the Lord would look at him and say, the Lord damn you. And he would put eternal hell upon Jesus Christ and all the curses that would be there. And may they be upon you for those six hours on the cross. Who else could do that but Jesus Christ? Amen? Is there anyone else who's like this? Is there anything else or any, any other technique or any other strategy or theory in the world who is like this resume? There is no one like him. But yet, how often do people sometimes stand up in pulpits and churches across America and say, here are seven ways where you can have a great marriage or here are seven ways where you can have good self-esteem. They might mention Jesus, but he plays a part in our story. It is about Jesus Christ. And we should be known as people who have one great obsession, Jesus Christ. That's why we need to stay focused on his dazzling resume. That's his person. But what does he do? Look at verse 23. Look at the qualifications of his work. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He would probably be canceled in today's society. What does it mean to reconcile? It means to change someone's status, to buy them back, to remove them from something, or to set someone free to make peace, or even better, 
become friends. Isn't that beautiful? But who did he, who did he reconcile? Here's who he reconciles. He reconciles the alienated, meaning the foreigner, the enemy. He reconciles those who are hostile in mind. This word, this phrase is talking about military enemies. Us pointing the gun at God and him pointing it back at us. It means that before we became Christians, we were in league with Satan. Ooh, that sounds really harsh. We don't really want to talk about Satan today. That's kind of like crazy Christian stuff, right? But Jesus says there's only two types of people in the world. You either have God as your father or you either have Satan as your father. And by the way, when he spoke those words, he spoke them to people who knew a lot about what the Old Testament said. We are not people who have it all together. We are not, as some people say in their interviews, whenever they mess up, they say, well, uh, that's not really who I am. No, that is who you are. You just finally had the opportunity to do it. We're doing evil deeds. We're, we're, not, we're not decent people. We're not neutral. We're not, not that bad. And the illustration that I love to use is the one that comes from Monty Python. Bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and then they, what do they do? Hit them with like the uh, skillet or whatever it is. Uh, there is no such thing as being not yet dead. Or maybe in The Princess Bride where like you get mostly dead. No, no, no. Dear unbeliever, you're dead. You are experiencing the curse of God that he has pronounced you spiritually dead and you have no life towards him. There is no faith that's just waiting to be acted upon. There is no ability, just as if when you came up and I died and you were at my funeral, I'd be in this casket and you would walk up. And if, if someone, let's say Levi came up to me and said, hey, do you want to get uh, lunch tomorrow 1130? You'd be like, I need to call someone real quick. It's crazy. But yet, why do we look at people and say, oh, just get your act together. Just make sure you obey these rules and obey these things and do these techniques. And then that's how you become a Christian. It takes a miracle. Job 15 verse 16 says that we drink down sin like it's water. And we could say we drink down sin like it's water on a hot Oklahoma day. And here's the question. If that's who we are, why do we focus so much on ourselves today? As one person says, if the problem is us, the solution cannot be us. See, we are so bad that we must utterly reject all of our efforts. We must reject all of our works to be to, be, to find forgiveness or to earn forgiveness. We must reject our resumes. We must reject our desires. And see, and some of you need to hear what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all, not some, we have all become like one who is unclean. And not some, but all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You know what the worthless, most worthless thing in the world is that maybe functionally? If you just maybe forgive this example, but when you go in the bathroom and you see some toilet paper on the ground, 
you won't even use that. That is the time when you feel like you are most loving. When you feel like you have your life together, when you know theology, your best works are like that, that you wouldn't even pick up to throw away. And we're not talking about some of us in here. We're talking about all of us. You see, when sin is no longer offensive and it's only psychologized, or sin turns into just mere mistakes, then grace is no longer precious. Jesus is no longer a savior, he's a self-help coach. And the gospel turns from good news to good advice. And you know what that actually will turn into? Another form of damnation. Because all we will do is look at ourselves and say, you better get it together, but we will only realize how far short we fall. How does Jesus reconcile us if we're that far off? Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That the Son of God who had dwelt eternally with the Father, he took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary, as we will confess in the Apostles' Creed later. And he took on flesh, and he was like us in every single way. I think we had a discussion at our table talk the other night, and I think I tossed a tennis ball to like, maybe it was Eric, wherever Eric Kyle Barth is. Um, and, he, and he caught it, or it hit him, or whatever it was. And I was trying to tell him, like, Jesus in his own body would feel that. Jesus had a real body. He became truly human. And because he did, because he is God and man, he is able to bring God and man together. And he does so on the cross. And you know what happens on the cross? As Jesus Christ is God and man, God and man must both reject him. Crucified under Pontius Pilate. Rejected by God on the cross as he takes our hell there. No one wanted him. His own mother stood far off. But there he is. There he is. Making you and God friends. It's all, it's all grace. He goes for us. He doesn't look at us and say, get your act together. He says, look, I will go for you. Jesus doesn't say do, he literally cries out on the cross and he says done. He goes for us and he brings us peace and oh dear believer, don't you need to hear this. Some of you walk around and you say, oh I'm a Christian but I need to continually beat myself up until I learn my lesson. But is that what Jesus Christ saved you for? Jesus is enough for the Father, therefore he should be enough for you. Right? Amen? Come on now. Yeah. Sometimes you get some like, mm, you know, and as one person says, you call it eating pizza. Sometimes we need to eat some pizza when we hear about Jesus, right? Here's what Martin Luther says. There was no counsel, no help. No comfort for us until this only and eternal Son of God, in His unfathomable goodness, had mercy on our misery and wretchedness and came from heaven to help us. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life and righteousness and every good and blessing, He has snatched us 
poor lost creatures from the jaws of hell. He won us. He made us. He restored us to the Father's favor and grace. He has brought us back from the devil to God. He's brought us from death to life, from sin to righteousness. And now he keeps us safe. Amen? That's a gospel right there. There's no one else like this. He reconciles us. Why? Well, look at, look at the next part of verse 22. To present us holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, to make us like him. Jesus Christ meets you in your sin, but he does not leave you there. He transforms you. He really does deliver you. He doesn't just pronounce deliverance. He actually does it. And we're going to be struggling with this the rest of our lives. And we're never going to be perfect in this life. But on that last day, there will be glorification. And all sin will go away. And we won't even have the ability to sin anymore. And is that not the pinnacle of all joy? He presents us holy. Now, how does he do it? Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, how do we become more holy? How do we become more blameless? How do we look more like Jesus? How do you do it? Looking to him. Not moving on from him. Not trying to say, okay, I got this Jesus thing down, but let me try something else. Or like, oh, I'm kind of getting tired of talking about Jesus. You dive deeper into him. That's what the Reformation was. Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox were calling people back to Jesus Christ. Not saying, oh, let's make sure we really put in these techniques so we can be very holy, put together people. Look to Jesus. Because it's as you look to him, there's a spiritual power that happens there that makes you more like him. Do you remember Moses when he was on Mount Sinai and he saw merely the backside of God's glory? And what happened when he came down the mountain? His face shone. That happens to you spiritually even more so when you look to Jesus Christ by faith. It does not happen when you say, let me make sure I master these techniques and just pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's when you look to Jesus in all of your sin and all of your misery and you say, there's mercy in you. And there's forgiveness. And see, that's what Satan wants to keep us from. He does not want us to look to Jesus. He can't take away our salvation, but he wants to take away our joy. He wants to take away our peace. He wants to take away our growth. And he wants to take away our security. Do you not see what's happening behind the veil in, in the Western world today? Everything is happening by Satan and his demons to try to keep people from looking to Jesus. And it has come into the churches. Because we have gotten bored. And it is no wonder the reason why things are going the way it is. And there are no other techniques that are helping us out. It's a very simple reformation that we need today. Come back to Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what Paul says, and that's how we respond to his resume. He says, if indeed, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
Not moving on from it. Continue in it. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting. That's like earthquake language. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. But continuing. You see, how do we get back? We go back to looking at Jesus. That's it. It's not really a secret. But we just don't do it. You see, here's what Michael Horton again says. A lot of the things that distract us from Christ these days are even good things. In order to push us off point, all that Satan has to do is throw several spiritual fads at us, moral and political crusades, and other relevant operations into our field of vision. Focusing the conversation on us, our desires, our needs, our feelings, our experience, our activity, and our aspirations, when he focuses the conversation on us, that seems to energize us. And at last, now we're talking about something practical and relevant. That's what the world says. But we need to stay focused on Jesus Christ. Because he is enough to build the church. And only he builds the church. And that's why our our Bible studies and our books and our prayers and our sermons, our songs, the podcasts we listen to, the conversations we have with our children... The campus ministries, the worldviews we teach, the personal devotions we have, our family worship and our mentoring must be saturated with Jesus Christ. The problem is not that we have too much Jesus, we have too little. It's not a critical theory that's going to help us. It's not new personality tests. It's not a new psychological theory. It's not self-esteem. It's not Jesus as just a means to a greater end. And it's not any other emphasis. But Jesus is like Wagyu meat. Have you ever had Wagyu meat before? Wagyu steaks are considered the highest quality of steaks out there. And when you have it, you will taste every other steak and you will say, Oh, this is good, but it's not compared to that Wagyu. When you have it, it is a delicacy. You don't eat a ton of it. You eat a little bit of it because it is so rich. And when you have it, everything else you eat will remind you of it. And you say, oh, I wish I could have another. Jesus is like that. Nothing else matches up to Jesus Christ. Nothing else changes us like Jesus Christ. Nothing else brings conversions like Jesus Christ. Nothing else glorifies Jesus like Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why the Greeks came up to Jesus and they say, we would see Jesus. God has one plan for church growth. Look to Jesus. That's why we need to stay focused on his dazzling resume. You see, what was the Reformation? The Reformation, it was not merely mentioning Jesus, it was drowning in Jesus. On October 31st, 1517, Luther posted the 95 Theses, and here's what number 32 said. They will be condemned eternally, together with their teachers who believe themselves sure of their salvation because they have letters of pardon. You see, we can be sure that if we merely have self-esteem without Jesus Christ, we too will be eternally condemned. So why do we keep proclaiming that message? The only message for salvation is Jesus Christ. Let me give you another quote by Michael Horton. Never before, not even in the medieval church, that's where the Reformation came from. Listen, this is a bold statement. I think he's right, though. Never before, not even in the medieval church, have Christians been so obsessed with themselves. 
Never before have people entertained such grandiose notions about humans and such puny views of God. Never before, perhaps, has God been so totally forgotten and lowered in our estimation. Self-esteem, self-confidence, self-this and self-that have replaced talk of God's attributes. Ironically, this has created the opposite of its intention. The more time we spend contemplating our own greatness in the mirror, the more clearly we are bound to see our own warts. Without the knowledge of God in whose image we have been created and the grace which he has made us children of God, narcissism evolves quickly into depression. The only answer today is to dive deeper into Jesus Christ. That brings peace. That brings freedom. That actually makes, the more we esteem Christ, the more we know who we are. That's why we need to stay focused on him. There's no one else like this, amen? And you can come to him freely. Don't try to clean yourself up. Just believe right now that he is enough for you. Because he was enough for the father on that cross. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bring us back to your son. And that you would help us to stay focused on him. To delight in him. To see him. To show others him. And as we sing, as we confess, and as we receive the benediction, may we yearn to know Jesus more and what he's done for us. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.